Hello, friends. Welcome back for another episode. If this is your first time listening to Exit Point, this is a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most extreme adventure sports athletes. If you've been enjoying the podcast and would like to support our efforts, please consider subscribing on your favorite platform and leaving us a review. It helps a lot more than you think. And if you feel like you've been getting a lot of value from the show, you can help us keep the lights on by buying us a coffee. There's a link in the description. To all the people that have been donating, we are grateful. I put my hand over my heart when I say this because it's been an amazing amount of support and encouragement that you've been giving us. Your support and communication is what makes this project thrive. If money's tight, no worries. We still want to hear from you. Our email addresses are in the description. In this episode, I speak with Espen Fadness. Espen has somehow stayed at the top of the discipline basically from the beginning of wingsuit base jumping. He was part of the community that opened the world's eyes to what was possible and how base jumpers could fly. He is an FAI world champion while representing the Norwegian national team, regularly holds sellout camps in the indoor wingsuit tunnel, and completes hundreds of wingsuit base jumps a year. Espen has been part of many film projects and continues to inspire the masses with his creative approach to filming and sharing the air with his partner, Amber. So with that, let's get Espen on the track. Well, let me focus some of my questions here because I feel like we've got a lot to cover. You know, like recently we've had people on who are specialists in certain domains. And uh, I feel like you're a specialist in all domains, really. Uh, you have uh, the, the full repertoire of experience as a champion in competition uh, performance flying. You're a hugely experienced wingsuit base jumper. Uh, you've done, I mean... You name it, you've done it. Professional camera guy, um, acro pilot, coach, tunnel professional now. Um, maybe we should start with the tunnel because I think that this has been like sort of at the cutting edge uh, in the development of skill around wingsuiting. And your camps have been a fantastic success. It's just, it's been such a pleasure to see you and Amber throwing these camps and I have a work schedule that, um, you know, it's like I get like six weeks in advance. So I'm only able to make plans like at that distance. And every time I've tried to come to one of your camps, uh, it's been sold out. So congratulations on that. That's truly amazing. Yeah, and thank uh, you. Um, so, but I have a feeling that you've learned a lot, right? I mean, because part of teaching is is learning. And if you want to learn something, you teach it and you have how many hours now in the tunnel? Well, I, I have no idea how many oh, hours Oh, wow. I have. Okay, so that's a lot. But, Could you ballpark uh, that, figure? It, on every camp we do, we have 10 days of coaching and we do two hours of coaching each every day. So a camp is 20 hours of coaching. We do 10 camps a, week, uh, a, month, uh, a year, so that's 200 hours of flying. It's not actually 200 hours of flying. It's, uh, you know, sometimes we are spending you know, time on our feet in the tunnel when people are on the ropes or leash or, you know, they need to be spotted in different ways. So, okay. It's, uh, I, I would say like maybe cut it down to half on quality time being in a flying position. Okay. Still a tremendous amount of time. Uh, is there anything that you, that stands out in your mind about what you've learned about flying over the last couple of years you've been doing this? Oh, it's such a good question. I think that 
there are two things that stand out from, from being at a tunnel a lot. Number one is the more we can fly the core of our body, the center of our body, and, and less the wings, the more efficient and powerful we become. And the second thing is the better control we have from top to toe and from hand to hand, the more clean we're going to do things. So, you know, engage core, uh, keep control of the leg wing, uh, no wiggling around. When you do a transition, you want to do it soft, you want to do it smooth. Friction in the air is not coming down to, you know, like having an aerodynamic helmet or, you know, like a perfectionized rig or something like that. Friction is the air is something we create by instabilities, pretty much. That, that's what I see in the tone. So, and, and we are always quite unstable, I would say, on, at least on a micro level as flyers. So the less friction we can create or like the less instabilities we have in our flying, the faster we are, the more powerful we are, the more able we are to stay on level, the more able we are to carve around each other, you know, do cool moves, you know, get back on level or separate to the group and get to high altitude to pull. It's, it, it goes on and on, but, uh, well, fly with the core and be stable. That's the two key elements that I've learned from the tongue. That whole um, idea of uh, instability and movement um, really stuck out to me the most uh, because at the end of each session, for people who haven't been in the tunnel, the it, it winds down and the power sort of dissipates. The air stops flowing. The wind stops being powerful. And uh, it's almost always like a, a competition to stay in the air. To, to And this is really a great opportunity to work on a max glide position. Um, let me, don't, I mean, interrupt no, it's, me it's if I'm wrong yes. here. You're not <laughs> you in yes right. agreement. No, no, we're speaking okay. in the same language for sure. Um, and it's like the very most smallest movement that you make of your leading edge or your body will, will disrupt that, that lift. And so it's like really about being as stable and still as possible. It feels like, would you agree with what I'm saying here I as well? agree, especially when you start coming down towards the stall point, it's really about being stable. Yeah. And I was, I mean, I took that away from the last time I went to uh, the tunnel and I feel like it had tremendous value in base jumping uh, particularly. But and then I also saw other correlations like uh, flying my paraglider. It was like, I started to be a lot softer with my hands and noticing like disruptions of the the trailing edge and the leading edge and and really trying to 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 not disrupt that airflow and, and really keep it as stable as possible um so yeah i just wanted to share that i thought it was a you know i think a lot of people emphasize uh the barrel rolls and the transitions and 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 really look maybe perhaps past some of the other things that you can gain from spending so much time in the air like that but for me that was really what stuck out uh and that i'm just piggybacking off of what uh, you, your answer there as far as uh, what you've been learning. And, and so that's really great. It's a, it's a really good point. And uh, I've heard the same from high level canopy policy in, in skydiving as well. You know, this, the softness of things is exactly the same. Oh yeah. Oh, cool. Um, are there certain tips that you give your students as far as like uh, what you're saying to control, uh, to fly the core of your body? Are there certain mistakes that seem to, to, to rear their head with each group of students that come your way for a camp? Yeah, well, uh, the, the, the list is quite long. I, I think we are all unique and everybody have their, 
they're, they're strong in the weak sides. We all have our challenges. I have mine, you have yours. Uh, there, there are a couple of things that, that we see that people struggle a bit with. And uh, one thing I see a lot is that people push their hips forward. So they, they have a, a de-arched default position. And uh, when you end up flying with that position, it becomes a bit locked and people struggle to get away from it. And it limits them a lot when they need to change their angle in flying or they need to work on increasing their performance in forward speed or, or glide. And I think that's, that's maybe the area where we work the most, trying to help people to get a relaxed, comfortable, engaged core where you can vary how much you bend in the hip and how you want to, you know, like put on the throttle or not in, in your flying and flying faster or slower or with more, more power or not. But I mean, there are so many different tips and tricks in, in this game. And what, what, I, what I've experienced though is I learned so much from every camp. Whenever I'm, I'm leaving those camps, it's like my head is boiling of new thoughts, ideas, and learning. Because every single person I meet on those camps teach me something. The, te the learning is happening in between us. It's in the, you know, in the interlaced challenge that we have together as a team almost, you know, me and another person. And it doesn't matter if they are very on a very high level or beginners. Everyone have a challenge and that challenged me and then we have to fix it together and it's such a journey it's really interesting so um i've noticed a way in your videos i mean you and amber have some of the most sophisticated and beautiful two-way wingsuit base jumps i've ever seen and i don't just say that to uh to hype you up it's like you guys have speed uh you always have some some margin to to flare and pull. Uh, you guys seem to be so in sync, and uh, it's truly spectacular. And do you think that that's part of that is from the tunnel, the time that you guys have spent together in the tunnel, or or is it because I one let, let me back up a little bit with that question because in the tunnel you have all of these visual reference points, right? Like there's that uh, aluminum. Um, uh, what do you call it? Crossbar that you can always look at. And it's just sort of like seems to be like in the right position as you're turning to keep yourself referenced. When you go into the sky, the, you don't have that reference anymore. Um, are those skills easily transferable into the mountains and uh, out, out, jumping out of planes? That's a good question. I think that uh, if, if you end up being stuck in a tunnel and you're almost only there, you're not truly going to evolve into a high level wingsitter uh, in, in base jumping or skydiving. Just like if you're stuck in skydiving, you're not going to develop a lot in base jumping or, or, or you know, being that pure base jumper. It's, it's in the combination of things. Uh, that said, I think that the reason me and Amber fly well together. I would say she's the one I fly the best with. She, she managed to get the most out of me of all the people I fly with. It's more because we know each other really well in free fall. And partially that comes from the tunnel because I just look at her face and I, I just know, you know, her body language and her behavior in, in the sky. And I'm sure you can relate to it with Ellen, that uh, the person you know the best, you, you can almost like foresee what 
what she's doing or, or your partner's doing. And, and that is not just coming from the tunnel. I think it's coming from, from spending time together in, in skydiving, in base jumping, in the tunnel. You know, I, I see the timing on the exit. I can, I can see when she's pushing off a bit late or a bit fast or, you know, all the small little details. And uh, a good friend of mine, he used to be the chief for the national team in Norway in skydiving. He said that it's, you need to do a thousand skydives together before you start getting good at flying together. That, that was from a competition point of view. But I think there wow. is a certain level of truth to it because right. every skydive is just like a minute or every base is a minute. So it takes a long time to truly get to know one another in freefall. Do you guys use comms? <laughs> a funny thing about comms, I, I would love to use them, but Amber don't like it. And uh, there is there is a level of story behind it, but uh, she had a really horrific accident a couple of years ago, and she liked to be in her own headspace, uh, especially when she's under canopy. Well, I get a bit overly stoked, so on intercom I start talking to her like almost like debriefing the jump while we're under canopy. So lately we haven't been talking much on intercom. <laughs> I wish we did though. I think it's a great tool. It is a cool tool. Um, I think that those uh, intercom systems haven't been uh, showcased any better than uh, Fred and uh, Vince's recent uh, uh, video where they flew down the Mont Blanc and he's, you know, recounting like, okay, we're going to be turning and going to turn up the speed. And uh, anyway, worth checking out if you haven't seen it. I know you've seen it, Espen, but um, uh, they did a fantastic job of showcasing what the power of having comms are. But I, I'm kind of going into that direction because some people like it and some people like Amber don't. And um, I think that uh, they're really nice uh, from my experience, but also that 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 unspoken communication that you and Amber share um, is always going to be, I think, uh, more powerful for, uh, for, for, really, for really nice two ways. I think would, you, would you agree or it just they're, they're both good? The thing is that if you truly want to communicate well without a language, you have to be so drilled. It's kind of like military drill style, right? If you're next to your special soldier in a special operation, people don't need to talk together. They just know what the partner's doing. But we need language or we're really good at it. We're good at talking. We're good at listening and, or most of us are. And uh, it's, it's a tool that we use in every life. And uh, a lot of us are missing out of it in, in freefall because we're not using intercom. And I think it will make us much more able to fly well together. And uh, I, the only thing about Fred and Vince that I don't like is that they speak French because I just don't understand <laughs> what they're saying. So I'm looking at them flying down Mont Blanc and I'm like, ah, what did that mean? Or what did they say there? And then, you know, I, I just, I need to learn French Yeah, because yeah. they're doing fantastic things. Oh man. Yeah. And, uh, why don't we uh, talk a little bit? We, so we, um, I'm jumping around here a little bit, uh, but I like to do that. So, um, so let's roll with it. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about your, your background and starting out um, where you grew up. Um, because I knew, I know um, from personal experience that you um, had quite a bit of experience in the mountains uh, with adventure sports, uh, climbing and skiing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and how it affect, it molded you into the person that you are now. I grew up next to the best base jumps we have in Norway. I saw them out on my window in the house where I grew up every day. 
and uh, I grew up in a climbing family, a mountaineer and skiing family. I had all the tools from a very young age to, to be in the mountain and learn about being in the mountain in all the different ways, risking for fun from, you know, as, as long as I can remember. I grew up in a sports town and uh, I did a lot of different sports. I was never the best in any of them. I've always been a bit of this pretty good at a lot of different things. And it, uh, I mean, I've been, I've been competing in climbing and alpine racing and football and jujitsu and swimming and I don't know what not. And uh, I liked all of them. I was always like number five, but I, I still had fun and I met a lot of really fantastic people that were far better than me and taught me a lot of cool things. And, uh, but first and foremost, I learned to enjoy the nature I had around me. And I was encouraged to use it and not necessarily compete in it, but just enjoy it and conquer, you know, and not conquer, but just be in the mountains and see the pleasure of potentially putting myself in risky situation and then, and then try to solve them in a, in a well-thought and, and smart way. I got a bit fed up of climbing when I was young because my dad pushed me far too much and uh, I, I got a bit over it in teenage years. I never truly left it though, but when I, when I found skydiving and I found air sport, when I turned 18, I started to clearly see that there was a place for me here in combining all the things that I learned from a young age into this new, really exciting activity of skydiving and base jumping and uh, put all the pieces together. And uh, I was very fortunate to meet uh, a guy, his name is Hans Holmefjord, and we became a bit of his like partners in crimes. We were, we were the same age and we were <laughs> eager, both of us. And uh, as we all know from, from a lot in, in base jumping and skydiving, we, if you meet someone that you share a passion with and you are on, both on the same level and you drive each other in the right direction, you, you can do a lot together. And we became best friends in, in jumping and evolved together with some good mentors that tried to hold us back a little. And uh, it just kept on going and going, and uh, it just ended up being where I want to be in life. Being, uh, I wouldn't call myself a base jumper anymore, really. I would rather call me almost like a para-alpinist. Like I, I, I rather just enjoy trying to get up to nice mountains and fly wingsuit down. And that's where I found my place, and that's where I connect the most with my childhood and my upbringing. And, and what I now today do for coaching and, and, and do of my spare time. Mm, I relate to that a lot as well. My dad uh, was a competitive skier and uh, we hiked constantly in our, in, uh, as a family and uh, spending time going up hills uh, and in the mountains is, uh, is really what, you know, I feel like I, I, I come back to my roots like that. And, uh, I feel a lot of the times like when I'm, uh, carrying my rig up the mountain that, uh, if I, even if I didn't have my, my wings, I would still be there. And, uh, I think having that kind of attitude is really nice because it's not just like sacrifice to get somewhere to do something. It's like, uh, really makes the whole process so much more enjoyable. It, I'm so way to there. And I, I, I mean, you and Alan, you live in one of the most amazing mountain places we have 
in Europe and uh, you have that option you can you can go up there for you know anything from <laughs> flying down skiing down or picking mushrooms or you know hanging out as a family and uh, it's all connected in this universe of being in nature just because it's nice to be in nature yeah and coincidentally enough we got to share some of that uh, beautiful uh, mountain time with with Hans recently uh, and that was a total ah, treat so fantastic uh, full circle really nice um, Molda is, uh, I could see that being quite a, um, a place that would, uh, drive someone that wasn't into mountain sports a little bit insane. Um, but, uh, you were lucky enough to fall passionate into the same things that your, your folks were involved with. Uh, was there any moment where you said, ah, you know, I'm getting out of this small town or, uh, uh, did you always appreciate it from day one? I, I always liked that town. And, uh, I think, I think. I was one of those that it fit very well for to, to be in a sports town. I, I loved being part of that community of anything from like team sports, individual sports to, you know, being out in nature. And uh, I do have a lot of friends that totally dislike that town when they were young. <laughs> um, I, I did leave the town and, uh, but, but ever since uh, I miss it, I, I'm often home and uh, it's, it's still, by me re regarded the most beautiful place on oh, I in the world it is gorgeous one of the most beautiful places i've ever visited for sure thank you that's uh i like hearing that <laughs> yeah um so let's talk about skydiving a little bit because uh what was your what was your first skydive like <laughs> i it was it's pretty surreal to start skydiving because i wasn't used to be bad at things I, as I mentioned, you know, I wasn't like number one in anything, but I definitely didn't suck at what I did. And I definitely sucked at my first skydive. I think most people do anyways. And, you know, it's like uh, I did a static line course. It was a week and we were drilling a lot, you know, leaving that Cessna 182 and wait for the canopy to open. And uh, I just didn't, didn't feel it. Feel it was very comfortable. I was quite scared. I, I was. Uh, I, I actually don't remember the free fall on my first skydive, and uh, it, I almost ended up in a bit of troubles after a couple of skydives because I I just couldn't figure out how to keep my heading. But then I, it started off like five six jumps. I started to really understand. I don't know, like, not that I really started to understand much, but I started at least to get a perspective of what was going on. And I started to feel a certain level of mastery. And um, it took me, I would say, 10, 15 jumps before I truly started enjoying it. But after that, I was completely sold. Yeah, I have a similar story. Uh, I like, I remember, like, you know, because at first I had to start with a tandem. I didn't do a static line, but I remember, you know, like the door, he stands up, he says, like, okay, let's go. It's super windy. And I'm just like, my heart is just beating out of my chest. And we're walking towards the door, and it's just like, holy shit, here we go. And I was scared shitless. <laughs> and uh, it was like, I mean, I feel like my vision turned into black and white and I didn't lost all audio yeah. and like, you know, I was seeing things in like 14 bit, you know, and then, ah, and then the parachute opens up. I have no idea what was going on in between that. I'm not sure if I breathe or, or what, but, uh, that was the most powerful experience of ever, 
you know, exceeding my cognitive load, yeah. my, my ability for my brain to process all the stimulation that was coming in. And, um, but, uh, and I didn't like it, uh, because as soon as uh, we were under canopy, I was like starting to get motion sick and, um, Oh, you had that one. Yeah. Was, I've heard that it was Amber so had the odd. same actually. I was so disappointed because, you know, probably uh, unlike you, I, I started skydiving, uh, to, to base jump and, uh, um, I'm just assuming that about you, by the way, maybe you can correct me, but I was like, uh, you know, I was like, all my plans were just like, oh, fuck, you know, like this sucks. And then that changed as soon as I jumped by myself, but yeah, it was quite a hurdle. Did you start skydiving to base jump? I did not. You didn't? No. What happened was that, um, I didn't manage to get on the national team in Alpine racing. I wasn't able to succeed at becoming a successful or, you know, professional Alpine racer. And so I had, I had to quit. It was too expensive and it left a deep hole in, I know, like a challenge, uh, action, like doing something where I had a purpose and a goal in what I was doing. So. I moved to a larger town and I started at the university and I truly felt I need something. I cannot just read books and drink beer with all these awesome people. I, I need something else, something new, something that challenged me. And uh, I, I just jumped on a, on a skydive course. I just, I just did a skydive course and I knew about base jumping, but I, I was pretty certain that I wouldn't do it because it just looked so scary and dangerous and completely wild uh, everything i grew, you can imagine like i grew up at the troll wall and the Carl burnish store and all these people like and then my dad he he was he was uh, you know working for the local alpine rescue group and i didn't get the best stories of these base jumpers <laughs> they just seemed like a bunch of complete lunatics so yeah i, I just started to try skydiving and what happened really was that on i think it was like skydive number seven i was last one out of the out of the aircraft and the, the, the instructor told me because i said i was struggling with heading and he told me just look at me just look at me and just don't let go of my eyes like just like look at me when you when you let go of the aircraft and just do that and i did and in a second i let go he jumped out after me while it was like you know giving me the thumbs up and smiles and i just looked at him and i was like that was the first time i ever i've seen someone in free fall and I was amazed. And I, I was just looking at him like I, I was, I, I can't say I flew relative to him, but I didn't lose heading. And when I opened my parachute, I, I just, it was incredible. It was the most wild and incredible experience I've had in my whole life. I was just shocked by how cool it was. Yeah, skydiving is pretty cool. Skydiving is pretty cool. Um, I had a moment of um, almost wanting to sell my skydive gear because uh, a little bit different than you, uh, I went to learn in Lodi and uh, immediately was like, okay, I'm going to be a wingsuit base jumper. Uh, you know, Lodi was the closest drop zone, uh, yeah. luckily for me. And uh, did, you, did you have did you have Bill as as an instructor? Oh, oh yeah. Oh no, not as an instructor. Uh, but he was present and, uh, okay. yeah, and, yeah. uh, he gave me a talk of like, uh, well, you know, I, I think I did num like skydive number three. He was like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, maybe you should take up golf. And I was like, you know, crushed like, uh, 
<laughs> here's the guy who has the most skydives in the entire world telling me that this isn't the sport for me. You know, and I was like, well, damn, that's not good. He can be quite cruel. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, and it got worse. You know, <laughs> I, I looking back now, I think that uh, my interactions with Bill are finally very positive as uh, and uh, I'm so grateful for what he provided for us and and the ability to do so many skydives at a, a you know it was fifteen dollars a jump. I mean that's like where can you do that you know and every day yeah, I, every good I've had some day. of my best yeah I've had some of my best day skydiving in Lolai. <laughs> and he, he is he is hilarious yeah and he make you jump a lot yeah yeah he is <laughs> like there's no sitting around you're you're there no. in the hangar you're putting your your rig together and you're getting on the airplane or you're getting out the door <laughs> um so was there a moment that uh, what i was going to say is that um you know i sort of i got a bit disenchanted with skydiving um because uh it was just stopped being fun uh, with the wingsuit and um and then things changed and the wingsuits got better um did you did your passion for skydiving remain intact throughout that period or did you tell me about that those days uh, <clears throat> for me it was it was uh I, I couldn't continue skydiving a lot because i just couldn't afford it yeah i was a student and it was just far too expensive so day shopping was for free and uh i was part of a crew in that town the VKB crew, a bunch of really nice, steady people that had an idea together to develop improved methods of, of, of tracking, like gear for, for tracking. And it was really inspiring. And I saw no need to skydive until 2004, where I met Louis Chanelbert. And uh, he was this, you know, world champion skydiver same age as me and you uh, just numerous skydives and extremely skilled and just have all these like legendary uh, scenes in crosswinds and uh, all of a sudden we were on top of a mountain together and i saw him proxy fly the shit out of his ass fly and, and it was just like beyond belief and he was on intercom by the way just talking to a photographer to tell the photographer when he came and it was just like the whole scene was just absurd he was on a level that was so ahead of time so ahead of anything i ever seen before we were just standing up there me hans holmerfjord from eric hyman uh, a bunch of people and we were just what just happened and what happened was the display of the combination of immense skydive skills combined with day jumping and the ability to fly wingsuit. And uh, yeah, I, I just basically just jumped off the mountain to get my wingsuit to hike up again to try and do the same as he did. Of course, I didn't do it as well as he did, but me and Hans did a kind of like a semi-proxy flight in the afternoon. And, I decided I had to go skydiving again. Yeah, that was 2004. Was that 2004? Comeback. Wow. I think uh, it was, yeah, it was 2004. The summer of 2004. And then uh, Matchsticks production, um, Seven Sunny Days, you, you both were uh, featured in that film, uh, skydiving, or sorry, base jumping. Uh, and uh, remind me of the name of that place. Uh, 
you did one of the closest flybys of uh, terrain <laughs> that anyone had seen until then. And uh, it was inspiring John Luig for his ability to fly his body in his suit. And then, but you were also a big part of the proliferation of people's understanding of what was possible with these wingsuits now, because you were flying. It wasn't just falling through the air. It was like, these guys are are in their bat suits flying. I mean, it, it, and it exploded on a viral level. I mean, people would send me those videos and, uh, you know, I had heard about base jumping and I was inspired to do it. But I feel like that those videos were like one of those, you know, it was like a, a an accumulation of ideas that led to me like be absolutely convinced that this is something that I had to do. And I feel like that movie was like a big, a really big part of it because it was just so spectacular. It's, uh, you know, all of this is thanks to Shane McConkey because he, he was one of the huge stars, ski stars with uh, Magic Productions. And uh, he called me the winter before. And <laughs> it was pretty funny because he, he was definitely one of my biggest role models. And uh, when he introduced himself, I, I just got completely starstruck. I just didn't know what to say. And uh, he just told me that he wanted to come to Norway and learn from, from us how to fly wingsuits like us. And it was just like an absolutely surreal, surreal situation to be in. And of course... Uh, we wanted him and his friends to come, and he he brought they, they brought in Luik and Master Productions or, or Samsung Days is basically a display of um, Luik's immense skills and uh, uh, the courage of the rest of us. <laughs> because <laughs> we uh, we just uh, he was just on a totally different level. He, uh, I remember on one of the jumps he did from a really huge mountain, Big Saxa, where he was kind of filmed on the bike on a friend of mine, where he, he, was, he was messing around with, uh, before he went into the helicopter with a Velcro system. And he finally got up to the top and uh, he was standing with Andreas and he was trying to put a, a huge photo camera, still camera, on his ankle with a Velcro. And... Uh, what he was going to do was like, he really wanted some nice photos of Andreas while he was filming him. So Andreas jumped off the mountain and he, he flew as hardcore as he possibly ever had done before in his life. <clears throat> Luik was right next to him filming him with his camera while he was taking stills from his ankle of Andreas. And when we landed... I, I'm not sure exactly who said what, but uh, I, I, if it was Luik himself that said, oh, it would be pretty cool to film a jump from the ankle like that. And then the week after we were in, uh, in the room stall and the producer asked me if, if I could just uh, do like Luik, but with a camera and a video camera and sure, I could do that. And, and uh, I just flew the line down to the road with this camera placed in the way Luik did and the producers did it. And uh, I, I flew my best. I wasn't particularly good at flying cannabis either. So I managed to just smash that really expensive lens uh, <laughs> on landing. <laughs> I felt really bad. And, uh, but the producer came down from the road and he, he, he came down and he, I, I just looked at him. I was like, I'm really sorry. I just, I just, I just smashed the glass of the lens. And he laughed at me and said, dude, no problem. You just made millions. 
Oh, wow. And uh, not for myself. But for yeah, them, right. Actually. And uh, they, they got an Emmy Award for that, that camera work. And of course, uh, well, I was wearing the camera, but everything else was just the and producer that put together. But still, it was just that whole experience was quite surreal and very inspiring. And we have so much to thank Luik and Shane McConkey for, you know, the, that explosion of wingsuiting being cool. And, uh, you know, it kind of like a comeback into, into wingsuit base. And uh, Shane, I mean, I, just, I don't think I ever met a cooler human being in my life. It was just a definition of being cool. Wow. Yeah. He inspired so many. And, uh, you know, when I started in Lodi, he, I knew he was jumping there and, uh, was really hoping that I would get to meet him. I just, uh, wasn't in time. We, our paths didn't cross soon enough. And, uh, unfortunately I, I missed him. Uh, and, uh, that's really too bad. The interesting thing about that time, you know, like <clears throat> with, with Shane and Lodi and the time was as far as I know, there were especially three people and I was, Shane was Miles Dasher and JT Holmes. And the three of them came and I'd never met any of them. And uh, we all know Miles today. And uh, he is just, there is only one Miles. He's such an icon, such a legend of base jumping. And little did we know that a lot of the key players at that time that you and I grew up with, like, you know, looking at like, well, who are they? They they truly played a part. Miles and JT and uh, Luik and Shane and all those guys. They're Absolutely. Awesome. They are. They are awesome people. Speaking of, of mentorship and, and the state of wingsuiting and, and base jumping, um, where do you see us right now? Because, you know, I, I often on, on these conversations talk about how we're still in the infancy of our sport. Because, uh, you know, living in a place like Chamonix where, you know, I'm exposed to paragliding and alpinism and skiing and these sports really feel like they've matured and they've both seen their or all of them have seen their fair share of fatalities and accidents and even on a reoccurring basis. Um, you know, there's something obviously different about base jumping because there's that element of jumping off of the cliff that I think that the general public can't divide from like that, you know, there's this core survival instinct that we have as humans that uh, you have to be able to surpass to be a participant in the sport. So uh, while I never think that, that, you know, wingsuit base jumping will be like a family activity that paragliding has become, I, I still see us in the way that we as a community are, are still in this growing phase of, uh, of learning and mentorship and, and, and the path of, of uh, understanding what is best practice, uh, being mm. serious sportsmen. Um, I'm wondering what, what your thought is on, on this. It's such a big question. And uh, of course, I've thought a lot about it, just like you and many others. I think that the main difference between base jumping and paragliding that you mentioned or, or climbing is that uh, paragliding is an organized sport. They have an education system, they have a federation, they have insurance systems. You know, you have an international federation, you have national federations, just like skydiving. 
And uh, it's the same with climbing. Climbing used to be like pleasure shopping. It used to be this completely unregulated sport of like small communities that tried to figure this out by themselves. And now it's a, a huge Olympic sport. It's uh, it sounds like a like a you know one of the main activities in Norway. It's like a folk sport. It's one of the most popular things you can do. You know to bring your children to the to the climbing center. I think base jumping. Uh, it's it's hard for me to talk about base jumping because part of base jumping is illegal, and the illegal part of base jumping will always just be this unregulated illegal kind of outlaw thing uh, for good and bad. And um, but if we talk about the legal part of base jumping, which is what French people call para-alpinism, which is in some ways in France actually organized now under a, under a federation. We are not organized on a global level and or, and or national level for most parts. And as long as we are not, we are never going to be like paragliding. And, uh, I think I've heard, and this is something I heard more in... Um, you know, how to build a society that uh, we need to create a society that are better than the individuals themselves. It's because we as individual humans are capable of doing so many bad choices. But if we create a framework that we can kind of keep us each other in chess, we can together create something that is safer, better or more prosperous, for example. Now, I am, of course, when I'm saying this, potentially you know igniting this strong urge in a lot of base members to say we will never be organized you know we are not going to be skydiving and i understand that and perhaps we will never be but as long as we are not we are never gonna be as you know well fought or safe or organized as uh, climbing or or paragliding I've heard you talk about um, in, in this in other conversations that we've had in the past. And uh, I think that you said that, you know, rules and base jumping will never work. It's they've got to be guidelines. And mm. I, uh, and I really like that because base jumping is one of the most extreme. And I don't mean this, you know, in the sense of like dangerous, but it, it's extremely, it's like the biggest extreme f freedom experience that you could have. Right. You know, like, uh, here you are at the edge of an object and you fly away, you know, or you fall away and, uh, and, and nobody's telling what you can do or not do. And, uh, it, it truly is the greatest freedom experience that I've ever had. And for someone to put uh, rules on that, ah, you know, it's, it's tough. It's, uh, <laughs> You know, and like you said, there's a, a societal aspect to it, like uh, what we experienced in Chamonix, for example, is like, okay, well, you know, if we want to preserve this for, you know, we can't crash into a paraglider. There's a lot of paragliders after 11 o'clock. So we're going to stop activity after 11 and then uh, resume once the thermals are too big and all the paragliders have flown away. And you know, that kind of makes sense, you know, and, and, uh, I, I naively thought that, uh, the activity in Chamonix would continue and, and be an example of, uh, of how base jumping could mingle with society. And boy, was I wrong. Um, <laughs> it's like the most painful thing 
in motherbation being for me is that Chamonix got illegal. You know, Chamonix is the most amazing, epic venue of wingsubation being that has ever existed and will ever exist. It doesn't, there are no other place like Chamonix. It's yeah. the coolest place on the planet for what we do. Yes. Have you, have you, <laughs> we had it for a while. <laughs> yeah, we truly lived through, uh, you know, what the golden age of wingsuiting in, in, in the mountains. And uh, Ellen and I had this conversation uh, just a couple of days ago and we were like, you know, it's like, fuck. Because it was like a beautiful, like we've had some very mild temperatures here in the Alps until just last week. And uh, it was like, man, it would be so good just to go do a bunch of base jumps at Bravant right now, wouldn't it? And I was like, ah. Oh. But, you know, maybe it's closed is a good thing for us because it's just so close. It's so easy. Uh, anyway, I digress. Yeah. Um, what I wanted <laughs> to talk about was that, um, you know, this, this sense of community and, and mentorship in the state of our sport, I think as you say about the guidelines that a lot of these guidelines are sort of kept in check from the people that are around you and the people that look up to you. And I think one of the most difficult things in our sport is, is just communicating with each other. And I know that, well, at least it has been for me and, and, you know, like, um, watching our friends die can be the most horrific and, and life changing moments. And just, just, uh, the words are ineffable. It's, it's horrible. It's, it's hell. And, uh, and I know you've experienced it and it shapes your communication with people and you really don't want to see it again. You don't want them to make the mistakes that you've seen other people make. And how do you navigate that scenario when people you care about are making mistakes? Oh, it's such a difficult subject. Mm. And it makes me think back at when you and I had uh, the Wingsuit Base course or the, the Wingsuit Base week in, in Luen. It was such a good week where you and I truly got challenged in stepping up to be the best person we could possibly be and being good mentors and uh, trying to give people good uh, methods to, to be safe. At the same time, we had people in the camp that are friends of ours that we <laughs> called we started calling them the uncoachables and uh, because they were just like living their own life and uh, we saw them do things that we disagreed on that we were seemed to be unable to reach out to them and uh, that story of, of seeing seeing people that I, I regard really close friends do things that I regard you know not best practice and then try to get through to them it's it's really challenging and um, to be honest is, uh, is a tricky thing. And uh, it's such a gray zone because what is the right altitude to open your canopy? You know, let's say it's 300 meters. Should you tell people if you see them consistently opening 250 or if you see them every now jump opening 150? Like when, when do you go to them and be like, hey, that was a bit low. If you had a couple line twists there and off heading, you, you could have you smashed into that house or, you know, there's a kindergarten there and there are power lines there. And, you know, like when do you approach them? It's hard because we, we are all part of this community of people that are maybe not re rebels, but we, we don't like rules. We, we, rent, we in some way, we, we are escaping it by leaving scattering. 
you know, because that's where we're being told told off or do something wrong. And then it's such a freedom feeling to just have that experience, you, you know, explained as standing on top of that mountain and jump off. It's the ultimate freedom. <laughs> then if your best friend is coming to be like, hey man, I want you to do something different. That's I I haven't figured out how to do it well. I'm I'm still working on it. I think it's like a life journey. I agree. And I think uh to um elaborate a little bit on your story, uh we were in Loen uh and there was uh some people who were already experienced in wingsuit base and we sort of set this camp up uh where we could film their exits. Uh, do seminars and uh, try to raise the level of everyone there, including ourselves. And uh, the uncoachables were listening very attentively, uh, saw some, some tremendous improvement. And uh, I think by like the last second or last day, they were doing the, I maybe the most hardcore, um, formation terrain flight that had ever been done ever before <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, yeah i know <laughs> and, and we were shitting our pants going like fuck you know if something bad happens this idea is just done and uh yeah. and and i totally agree with you there because it was like it was so fucking awesome what they had done and we were all so stoked but at the same time it was like oh shit you know like this is hadn't wasn't something that was regularly done yet and like what is pushing the boundaries in a respectable way? That so, I guess we could leave this question unanswered, and um, yeah. you know maybe there's people who are like just getting into base jumping or, or or thinking about you know like talking to a friend. It's like maybe there isn't any real right answer, but um, I have one I have one thing though that I'm not saying this is the right answer or helping in any kind of way, but I have lost some really good friends where I've been sitting there after they're gone and I've been wishing that I told them. And it's been haunting me a couple of times because I didn't have the courage to tell them to do things a little bit differently. I'm, I, I'm not sure that it was, would make a difference, but I just didn't tell them and now they're gone. And that's horrible. Yeah, I... I uh... I know that feeling as well. It's, it's difficult to live with. Moving on to sunnier thoughts. Um, yep. Do you think too that uh, maybe we're progressing in a way because acro flying is so accessible, the suits are so good, the level is going up uh, generally that, you know, and to be honest, like flying in formation with friends and a base jump can be more fun than terrain flying. Uh, do you think that this is something... Um, a next evolutionary step in our sport? Yeah, I actually think so. I, I think we're, what I'm seeing and what, I, what I've been seeing lately is that uh, we skydive a bit more. You know, we do more skydiving and it's becoming kind of cool to be very able to fly relative to each other and fly really well together. And... Um, uh, I don't see that many of those like super, super hardcore proxy flights where it's like just like, you know, pure proxy flight. And I'm, I'm not necessarily like, I love a really nice line. It's, uh, it's something about it that is just pure awesome. But 
that time that we saw, let's say about 10 years ago, where people were basically putting chainsaw sound on cutting, you know, branches on trees down the mountain, it, it's a bit past that point now. And uh, we're not seeing, or it's quite rare that we see accidents where it's just like, you know, people just suck it flying and they just impact because they fly really close without knowing what they're doing. Uh, we are not seeing that much of that anymore. And uh, I, I might be too optimistic here now, but I feel that we are moving a little bit past that point now. We are improving as, as a community. Something that I think about when we're talking about this is, uh, you know, the relationships and uh, you and Amber, um, you know, have a, a very unique relationship uh, sharing, as I do with my wife, uh, sharing mm. our passion. And there's an element of danger within our passion, obviously. And uh, do you feel like communicating with her is easier than your friends? Or can you talk about risk and how it plays into your relationship? Yeah, it's interesting. I we we talk about it a lot, and uh, we can end up in conflicts around it, where we we get upset upset at each other, and it can go both ways. It can be that she, for example, feels that I'm pushing her, or she can feel that she feels that I'm like overprotective, and uh, it's tough because. I have to let her go. I have to allow her to just go out and do wingsuit base jumping in the way that she feels like. But I have this touch of anxiety in me, always. Well, especially if she's jumping and I'm not. One example was today. I was, uh, I actually did a, a shift where I was operating a cable car at the Lewin Skylift area where we live oh, really? while Amber was base jumping. And it was foggy, uh, kind of on and off fog. And uh, I could just sense I had this touch of anxiety riding me through the whole day. Well, what does it mean? Because I, I like to say that I trust her, and I do. But then if I have this touch of anxiety, it means that I'm afraid that something is going to go wrong. And I guess that's uh, very healthy. And it's very real and very true. Uh, what we're doing is is an activity where there is a probability of something going wrong, and we all know that the consequence could potentially be fatal. And uh, that's nagging me when it comes to my wonderful, lovely wife, for sure. And I'm 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 sure you have felt the same. Or oh, absolutely. Maybe you haven't. Yeah, no, uh, for sure. And uh, I think I've spoken o openly about it before here, um, but uh, we really sort of um, limited our exposure to technical jumps, you know, meaning like short starts together because I felt like it was a bit distracting. I focused a lot on like uh, how she's doing, how she's feeling, like... And just worry in general, uh, like anxiety, like you say. And I felt like it occupied a lot of my mind while we were jumping, uh, stuff like that. So uh, it's been quite a few years now, but I, I just chose that those kind of jumps would be for me and my buddies. And uh, that wasn't something that I particularly wanted to share with her. And it was a point of conflict. 
And uh, I think that she felt like, oh, she didn't, I didn't trust her skill or this or that. And, you know, I think it took quite a, quite a few years for us to like, just like work through that kind of conversation to come to a conclusion that it's just like, it is what it is. And we can still, you know, enjoy plenty of beautiful exits together and just sort of, you know, like uh, save that hardcore stuff for, for when we're on our own. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. And, uh, well, how to express this? Uh, I, I partially feel that it's a, it's a very healthy and interesting alarm that is ticking when I feel a touch of anxiety for her because Ellen is a very capable bass jumper and, and so is, is Amber. So if the alarm is starting to go off, uh, the alarm should go off in general quite often. And, uh, and uh, I have definitely had times when I have felt unsure about whether this was, was fine for me, being somewhere with her. And then I've ended up concluding that, well, then it's not for any of us right now. Then I, I, I personally need to increase my level. Like I need to get better at what I do if, if I feel like that about an exit point. So I think, I think in, in some ways it's really healthy to be base jumping with the one you love because it makes you very aware of what is, what is past the line of acceptable risk. Oh yeah, I totally agree. Like personal awareness is so uh, muddled, you know, it's, it's so much easier to look outward and judge somebody else on what they're doing and where they're doing. Uh, so yeah, totally. I agree. Like it would be so when you're outside of your own boundaries or pushing the limit, it's, it's hard to tell it's really hard to tell. And then, you know, us with our testosterone running through our blood and, exactly. and then our massive egos, uh, it, it's just, it's really a <laughs> difficult, you know, area to, to navigate. And that woman's touch can, uh, could be a nice balance, I think. Yeah. Um, to have a trusted partner in life and, uh, and, uh, just get, to, get the truth sometimes. The yeah. tough, the tough reality, and then have someone. It's actually possible to have tough arguments with and disagreements, right? right. It's because rare, huh? uh, I, I, I have quite a few few bodies of bears with me that there are no tough arguments happening. It's just uh, we just hike up a mountain, and uh, if it's go time, it's go time. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I guess we grow on being in a relationship like that. Do you feel that there's elements, uh, I mean, we might've covered this already that, that are make a, because there are couples out there that, uh, maybe just be starting or, 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 or look up to you guys and, uh, you know, like, oh, wow, I, you know, we want to be like them. Like they just seem to, to do all the best things. And, and there's a, you have an element of success in your relationship, um, what are some of those elements outside of communication that, that make things successful for you as, you know, a team and, and a romantic relationship? You don't have to talk about the romantic side of things. I'm just, <laughs> what, there's got to yeah. be some ingredients there that, uh, you know, have made you guys such a power couple. There are, there are things in, in Amber's ability to, in, in air sport that, um, that is her strong side, things that uh, I, I'm just simply not as good as her in it. And uh, for example, she's a far better back flyer than I am. She's always been, she's a better free flyer than me. She's 
really skilled out face carving and I kind of suck at it. <laughs> the, so I, I'm annoying. a far better climber. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, a, I'm a much better climber than her. Like I, I know more about the mountains. But in our relationship, that there are things that she's just much more skilled in than I am. And and vice versa. And, and then also in in the way we work, there are somehow she's really good at Excel sheets. She's just absolutely extraordinary at putting up camps. Well, I'm more just hopeless until I'm there with the customers and customer and then I, I do my thing. And I'm not saying that I'm really good at that, but I'm just saying that that's where I start working really hard. Anyways, the we need each other. We really need each other. If we're gonna if we're gonna live this life and have our income in air sport, uh, I, I'm I'm kind of lost without her, and I think she's gonna struggle without me. And it it gives us, uh, I, I think it, whether we want it or not, it make me quite humble uh, in my approach with her. Uh, I know that she has a lot to offer me, and she knows to send back and. It actually affects the way we behave when we're not working in a good way because we we leave ba- we leave air sport quite balanced and she kind of like she 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 dressed me off in my <laughs> that sounded really weird dress her up but it's uh <laughs> she she know who I am in yeah. in air sport so when we relax together we. We, we feel like we know each other in a way in a quite a vulnerable way and it makes us i think i think function quite well as a couple when we just shut down air sport okay so being able to separate yourself um from your activity and allowing some vulnerability is is what i'm hearing from you yeah but that vulnerability actually is enlightened quite a lot in air sport because there are so many times when when she see my limits and she need to help me. I need help to make things work. Like I'm, I'm just basically without her, I'm lost in the work we do in air sport. It, it can be, for example, like we're we're in in Stockholm coaching, and I I just don't know where I'm going with someone. I just I need her help, so I I have to have her help. And she looks at it and she tells me, oh. You just need to ask ask her to stretch her ankles more, or she just need to, you know, relax her shoulders, or it can be things that I don't see, and and she see those things, and and that dynamic then plays into your life because you're leaning you're leaning into her when you need it, and you you're familiar with that pattern already. Yeah, because nobody else see that. That's something I do with her. I just allow her to see where I'm. I need help, and uh, and where I'm. You know, my, my ability to coach or ability to, you know, do something is just lost. And then it's just, uh, uh, I guess she just get to know me really well through that. Yeah. Interesting. Pivoting away from the, the dynamic of relationships, um, but the relationship with a, a, probably another big presence in your life, social media. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you've invested quite a lot in your social media presence. And um, would you like to talk to us a little bit about uh, your thoughts on it? Because it's quite a loaded question in a way, because it it seems like almost a necessity as a professional air sportsman. And uh, 
but then there's also some some baggage that comes along with it. Could you do you care to tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. You know, there was a time. I think this was in 2001. It was me and Hans Holmefjord, and uh, we uh, we jumped off this really huge illegal war, uh, illegal wall in Norway that I'm not going to mention the name of. And uh, Hans, <laughs> being the charger, he 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 just jumped off, uh, turned over on his back, just to look up at the edge of the mountain that he was leaving. And when he landed. His eyes were just glooming, and he told me, Espen, we need to try and capture this in a way that make people understand how awesome it is. We need to try and make it realistic, show it, show it what it is, because this is insane. That's why he told me on the landing. And then he, he bought a camera for his student loan. He just basically burned off all his money on, on the camera. I actually later on lost his camera off the troll wall, but that's a different story. But, <laughs> but, but uh, there was this passion that started very early on. And that's what made us make uh, the movie Super Terminal and many other things. And it's this idea that we want to um, create images like videos like something that tells the story of how it is experienced to base jump and i have i have never lost that passion and uh, quite often or I, I can tell another story about this so in 2009 or 2008 i got injured there's a long story around that but anyways i i had this period where I was um, I was questioning myself. It was after seven hundred days. I was questioning if my motivation was to film and brand myself more than just jumping. So I, I actually did three years in a row without a camera. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, like no camera. I was just like base jumping for myself. I even had friends that wonder if I had retired because they <laughs> never saw videos. Quite funny, but I was jumping. I just didn't do it with the camera. And then I met Yuki Sommer. And I just could not figure out what he was doing because he was able to not only proxy fly, you know, like you know, pass by ridges, but he was able to kind of consistently fly really close to the terrain over time. And I asked him, how do you do this, Yuki? Like, what on earth are you doing? How are you able to fly that smoothly over terrain? And he just looked at me and said, yeah, you just do it. <laughs> You just do it. That was the most dumb answer I've heard in my life. But that's like Yuki style. Yuki is not the best coach. He's really good at flying, but he's not necessarily the best coach. But he told me to put a camera on and just try and angle things. And uh, he just told me a little bit tip and tricks. And then I was I was looking at some of his videos. And then I started jumping with the camera again. And that's when I noticed that it was as if, if I had a camera on, I had this extra layer of motivation. I love hiking in the mountains. I love being in the mountains. I love base jumping. I find it really fun. And if I can combine that with trying to capture things, like trying to create something, it's as if I see the lines through the lenses, lens of a camera idea. 
And uh, at that point, I just had to admit to myself that that is what I truly love to combine trying to get up to like being on top of a mountain, being on an exit point at the right time with the right light, with the right conditions, with the right gear and the right plan, and then execute and capture. That is what I love. And I've always loved it. And I post things when I'm proud of it and I am stoked about it. And it's been following me for probably yeah, actually 20 years now with that little break of three years. And uh, I find it awesome. And whenever I see other people post uh, really rad videos, and I'm not talking about like hardcore proxy flying necessarily, but it's just like things that inspire me. I get so inspired. I really like it. I really like it. And I I saw this video the other day. It was someone that posted a, a, a wingsuit video where they put on a layer of where it looked like it was nighttime. But it was a daytime jump. I know it was a daytime jump. It was part of it. And I got really pissed because they were faking it. I don't like faking it. I wanted to be real. I want to just be very, very honest with uh, what we post or whatever we capture. Like try to show it as it is. That was the original idea. And um, I don't have a problem with um, social media, really. Um, I do acknowledge that uh, I quite often in my life have been choosing to be very bold in my find because I have a desire to create something. And that's part of my whole kind of motivation, I think, my whole system. It's like a desire to create, desire to create something, decide to prove something, decide to be part of writing this story of our sport, be, create, it's like being part of this journey together with everyone else. Right. The, truly the social aspect of it. The, you're, yeah. you're, you're leading on the social of the social media. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a unique perspective. I appreciate it. Your content is extremely beautiful. So, uh, yeah, I, I can see that. Um, you know, there's some people that say, that talk about a percentage of their capability uh, when they're in front of the lens, you know, like uh, whenever I'm doing a project. And Yoke is really good at that as well. Like the most chill professional ever, you know, like producers will be <laughs> uh, screaming, running around. And, you know, like he'll, he'll come up with his hair messy from like just waking up and, you know, he needs to have a coffee and a shit before anything else happens. And, uh, he's really kind of like solid on, you know, he's going to do his thing and that's it. Uh, but that's not everybody's style. And, um, do, do you have like a rule for yourself that, you know, like, okay, I'm going to be doing this job. And I'm going to be only operating at 80% or, I mean, I'm throwing this out there. Don't let me fill you with, uh, with words. Mm. How do you approach uh, the professional side of things and how much risk is accessible in a professional environment? Oh, it's, uh, I think anyone that, uh, just have a simple answer to it, uh, is, is, I'm not saying lying, but, uh, I think it's a bit simplistic. There is an amazing movie out there made many years ago by Jimmy Chin, uh, Meru. And it's about uh, the alpinist and uh, how a highly skilled, uh, it's, it's a Conrad Anker saying this, but it's, it's about that 
to be a really skilled alpinist is to have the ability to push really far and uh, but but know where to turn around and the truly highly skilled alpinists are able to push up to the very fine little tip of their abilities and still see that moment when they need to turn around what i'm getting what, what, where i'm coming with this story where, where i'm going at is that um what is really important if me or you or anyone is uh, is having a, a client or, or a mission you know a job in in wings of jumping is to truly know what you can do and what you can't do like to know our limits and i don't think it's necessarily right to you know, say 80%, I do relate a lot to that, uh, that number, but to be quite as clear as you possibly can on what you are able to do. And the only way to know that is by jumping a lot, you know, like really be current of what to do, like know your gear, know your numbers, know down to the smallest details, everything about your exit. When, with your head facing forward, sideways, whatever you know, like it is people want you to do. And the more you know, the more able you are to say no. That, that's, I guess, my kind of moldy, lucid answer. Mm -hmm. I appreciate it. There's, um, you know, probably some people that are listening to this and, and are aspiring uh, to be professionals. Do you have any advice for those people? Oh. <clears throat> wow, it's such a good question. Well, first of all, be patient because uh, base jumping is uh, a sport where it takes many, many, many years to get experience because every base jump lasts for a very short time. And uh, yeah, it takes just so many years to truly get good at it. If anyone actually is, I, I don't know. Um, another thing is that if you want to be a professional, you want to do it a lot, but you don't just want to jump off a mountain and be, you know, proxy flying or charging a lot. You want to figure out how to develop the skills while you decrease risk. So for example, go to the tunnel or skydive a lot, which means become a good skydive coach or become a tunnel coach, or move to a place where you can do numerous observations in a safe way with lots of awesome people. That will help you a lot. But maybe first and foremost, seek knowledge from the ones that are better than you, because there will always be people that are better than you, that know more than you about anything. And if you can meet them and ask them questions and learn from them and jump from them, then jump with them and just never think that you know it all, then there is hope. Then maybe in uh, 10 years of hard work, you, you could be there. Got to put in the time. What about positioning yeah. yourself for jobs? Have, the, have jobs come your way because of the people you know, because of uh, your social media presence, because of your website? Uh, tell us a little bit about your experience there about finding those jobs. I, I honestly haven't gotten that many jobs uh, I, maybe that people think that but uh, i think for example you have you have had bigger jobs than i have had 
you know, the, the job you did with Alan there down in Baran was, was far bigger than anything I've ever had, I think. And, um, but I, I think it's about network. It's about, uh, getting to know people and, um, and again, just be very active, jump a lot, meet a lot of people and, uh, get to know one another really well. And, uh, in the end, when someone is hiring someone from a job, it's about their skills and how much they can trust you. Because if you know that, you know, like if, if you are to advise on a, a jumper to, to do a job, you seriously need to know that that person is trustworthy and, and, and can do the job. So become that person and that takes time. Uh, speaking of, uh, we, we talked a little bit about, um, advice and I've noticed that, uh, you've, you've gotten some really good advice recently on birds where people are making some exit, uh, errors. I'm jumping around yeah. again, but I really want to talk about <laughs> this because I think it's, uh, it's a, it's a really good one, uh, because, uh, starting a wingsuit is a very important part of base jumping. And, uh, I, I, I read recently that you said someone probably is getting, uh, you know, not getting all of their, they can out of their exit technique. Can you tell a little, a little bit about what you're looking for in exit technique? Well, if you look at exit technique, it's, um, it's a lot about physics and, uh, what we want to see in an exit is whatever result you have further down the line. You know, where are you after 20 meters or 30, 50, 100? Often people have, um, especially exits that are at least slightly critical or technical, uh, you, you will have some sort of uh, critical point somewhere, maybe 100 meters down or something. And uh, if we look at how athletics behave, when they are, you know, jumping as hard as they possibly can, or it can be like par parkour people or dancers, they, they use their whole body and it comes from the core. It's like, how are you possibly going to transform your body and your strength and everything into as much forward power as possible out of that exit point? And you don't need to press it on an exit point. You can press it into a swimming pool or at the gym or anywhere like to be comfortable as an athletic yourself. Because if you think of an exit point, uh, like how to exit, there are two things. It's create horizontal movement, like make your mass move forward horizontally as fast as humanly possible after the exit point, and then hit the angle nicely. Like if you can hit the angle perfectly, so you don't wobble after a couple of seconds, but you just like smoothly hit the angle and you have that forward speed, those two things are going to be awesome. And then if you, you're a bit nervous on exit point, so you're a bit stiff in your arms and your shoulders and you know, you, you don't actually use your whole body, then you're going to lose a couple of kilometers per hour. And that's going to be many, many meters, a hundred meters down the line or 200 meters down the line. Now, the reason I'm saying this is because I'm thinking about this every day in Luan, where I am jumping hundreds of jumps every year. I'm trying to figure out how I can optimize my exit point, my exit. 
and I'm looking at people around me. I have friends that are, have far better exits than, exits than myself, and I look at how they do it, and I'm questioning, like, how on earth am I going to put that much force into it? And uh, then I go to the swimming pool, and I push off, and I try to test things, and I try to feel, like, how am I going to do this? I'm going to put more power into it. Because I know that there may come a day when I'm on an exit point, and this truly matters. This can be the difference between life and death because I made a couple of other bad choices, for example. And another thing is, I never want to be a person in Beishaving that deep inside know that I have a really weak exit and I actually don't fly that well after a couple of hundred meters. So I'm constantly finding myself on exit points with my friends and I'm asking them, how is this exit point? Ah, it's okay. And then I know that their exit is better than mine. And I don't fully have the powerful exit they have. No, I don't want to be that person because I don't need to. Because me and everyone else, you and every, all of us can fix this by going to the gym and, you know, going to the swimming pool and anywhere and just optimize it. And that day when you're standing at a point, it's quite amazing to be there and know that you have really solid, safe, good exit where you at least have an exit performance that is at least as good as everyone else there. There's some certain safety in it. Oh, there's just so much satisfaction that comes from starting it fast too, isn't there? When you just know yes, when you it is. a perfect angle with just a, that explosive, you know, push off. Uh, it's just like, uh, it just makes the whole jump better for sure. You have, uh, there's one annoying thing. I just can't figure it out. Like, uh, a complex, like two seconds after exit, I am de-arched and I remain de-arched even though I have a nice angle and then I manage to arch up. You don't, you don't have that. You're arched. How hmm. do you do that? I'm not sure. Um, I think I've changed my style a little bit since we uh, were jumping together. Um, I was like really aggressive um, about, um, you know, holding as much air as I could or presenting as much surface area. And now I'm not as current and I'm more searching for stability. I, I'm always pushing as hard as I can to some extent. Mm. I mean, always, <laughs> yeah. you know, of course. <laughs> I, I can totally relate to that. Right. Yeah. But um, I'm, I'm, I'm more focused now on angle and relaxation so that uh, I don't get unstable. Because I think that just while flying, you're in the most performance performant position there's less stability and so that there's like this balancing act of stability and performance so i honestly don't know i felt like i did know and then now i don't know uh, because what's more important if you don't have stability then you don't have anything um, and if you have too much performance and you go unstable then you really fuck it up uh so yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe I'll have to look back at some of my videos. Oh, you've had some good ones. I've been studying your access, actually. Oh, wow. Thank you. Truly, I have. I'm not saying this to flatter <laughs> you, but I have. Yeah, there was a slow motion video of you, I think it's well, a year ago, two years ago, and I was looking at it several times. And I was just like, that's a good exit. Oh, thank you. Um, let's talk a little bit um, before we leave about uh, what you see for the future. Um, you know, you're, you've hit a really nice stride here in your, uh, your coaching and, uh, your camps are doing really well. 
you're continuing to wingsuit coach uh, from the sky as well. Uh, where where do you see yourself in five or ten years? Um, to comment on that, it, it's uh, it's interesting to have that uh, get that question because one of my one of the people I admire the most is Fred Hugen, and he has this extraordinary ability to just no one knows where he's going until you see this tremendous amazing project happening and then it's like ah oh, that's what he did and both him and Vintrafe had have uh, had this skill so by by being very like specific on where things are going i'm basically saying things that haven't happened yet but i hope is to happen well i do hope that amber and i will continue having camps for the next couple of years <clears throat> we we just finished our first full year with running camps and it's been really fun and it's just been, been becoming more and more fun for every camp uh, probably because we get better at what we do we learn so i'm hoping that we're going to do this for many years to come and i'm hoping that we will see more wings of tunnels popping up in uh, the me states too. especially yeah I do think we're going to have a tunnel in the States, and I do think we're going to have more tunnels down in Europe, much closer to where you live. Cool. And um, and I, I think that's going to be part of, of my life for for many years to come. When it comes to, to wings of day jumping, uh, where, where I'm very, which, which I'm very passionate about, I, I, I want to become an all year around wingsuit base jumper and I'm, I'm working on fixing my gear better and uh, getting more comfortable with uh, cold temperatures such as like minus 20 degrees or even colder and uh, combining uh, climbing like alpine climbing with, with base jumping and not base jumping wingsuit flying and uh, and that's my mind is a lot there and uh, the, the the fun thing is that it's because of the tunnel because I can test out a lot in the tunnel so I, can, I can put, you know, like ice axes and crampons and poles and all this other stuff in the wingsuit and test out everything. I can test the pool, I can test out flies, I can, I can be in the tunnel and figure out all the little details. So I will be able to find myself on top of exciting exit points in cold, challenging winter environment, being dry and comfortable and, you know, hydrated and warm and, and, and comfortable with what I'm about to do. And, and that's a, that's a dream. And, um, I feel it's, um, um, I have this heritage in a way from my father and he was a very passionate ice climber and alpinist, and I want to be more like him. I admire him a lot and I want to experience what he have done so much in his life. And I want to put that into, to base jumping. And uh, I hope we got, I'm going to do more of that in the years to come. It's so good. Uh, that's truly where my passion lies too, is uh, high alpine uh, base jumping or wingsuit base. It's, uh, uh, it's, just so, it's just so incredible. I mean, we talked a little bit about that freedom experience. I mean, there's nothing like, like uh, doing uh, you know, hours, hours and hours of arduous climbing to find yourself at this incredible flight and exit point. And, it's uh it's truly spectacular it's definitely where i want to continue my uh my passion to to drive it's 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 overdue it's overdue that we we do this together though absolutely absolutely (laughs) it's so hard too because you know if you have to travel 
you know, so much of Alpine base is about having the time off and being in the right position at the right time. Cause like there'll be some years where I get a ton in and it just seems so easy. And then other years where I'm really hungry to do it and the weather doesn't cooperate for my days off and this, you know, it's, it's, it's really, uh, yeah, it's really, a uh, a, a right place at the right time sort of game. But I agree with you too, man. Fred, wow, so inspiring. So many fantastic yeah. projects. So much, so much creativity, and it's just like a what a what a legend, and uh, never ending. Yeah, and you just like when you think you know they've done it all, like they have another project that comes out, and it just blows <laughs> your mind. You know, like yeah, well, that's cool. I'm I'm looking forward to, and you too as well. Like uh, your storytelling ability, and and. Uh, uh, you and Amber's dynamic is uh, is truly creative and and skillful and uh, yeah I'm I'm super excited to see what you guys do next. Um, with that, uh, we're sort of out of time now, and I feel like we could just keep going on and on. There's so many things that I want to talk to you about, like uh, performance flying and how it's been applied to your base jumping, and your thoughts on suit progression. And but um, I think we're just going to have to say we'll do it for another time. Yeah. It's been such a nice time to get to, to chat with you again. It's uh, man, we we have been hanging out for 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 a while now with COVID and uh, you know like um, me being far up here in Owen and you being down in in uh, in Maglau or Chamonix area and then you having a family now. But um, it's been really nice. Uh, really appreciate you wanting to bring me on on exit point and um thank you so much thank you well you know you've been highly requested and uh it's an absolute pleasure my favorite thing about doing this is that uh, it's so rare in life you get to have a focused conversation with somebody that's uninterrupted with our phones and our busy life and uh this is uh this whole experience has been uh quite a pleasure so thanks espen and uh you said you've agreed to come on for a follow-up and i'm gonna hold you to that all right that's the deal Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Remember, we love to hear from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to hit us up. Big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer. We love you, man. If you'd like to learn more about this podcast, please visit exitpointpodcast.com. See you on the next one.